number of years ago, the term fake news came into wide and popular use in America. You heard it in presidential speeches, you saw it on news headlines, and the like. It felt hard to go a day or two without the given facts of reality being called into question. Out of this, we saw a rise and a surge in alternative news sources and independent media outlets. They each doing their own investigating and reporting, which is great. But this gave rise to a growing sense of not being able to discern what is true and false. Who is trustworthy in telling the truth? Because sometimes the stories we were presented with didn't quite match up. It became difficult at times to tell what was true. And just as a quick aside, none of them are telling the full truth all of the time. They've all got their agenda for you for what to think and be afraid of, but that's a whole different teaching. Later in 2020, this only became more entrenched as people were quarantined in their homes and the average screen time per person increased by almost two hours a day per person. So that's two extra hours a day of filling our minds with social media and news content. And with the release of documentaries like The Social Dilemma, we began to understand how social media has affected the way that we consume and receive news and how the algorithm of social media silos people into echo chambers of only like-minded other individuals, which in turn has polarized our population into ideological tribes at war with one another. Each of these tribes with their own set of facts and stated truths. We saw also in in that time scandals with Twitter and Facebook and other media platforms as certain posts began to get flagged or taken down altogether as misinformation by the hosting platform. This gave rise to questions of free speech. Who gets to be the gatekeeper of what information, if any? In all this time within our nation, we have this uptick in uncertainty of what is true or not. How can we know for sure? Even more recently, we have entered into a new era of AI technology with the release of ChatGPT and the engine that it runs on, where AI can now create a Lord of the Rings trailer that looks like it was produced by Wes Anderson, and I had to Google if that was actually a movie coming out or not because I was very excited. (laughs) It was not real. Or more alarmingly, deep fakes that are now even more realistic than Jordan Peele's 27 deep fake of Obama. Scammers are now able to use AI technology to replicate your voice and call and scam a loved one because it sounds like you are in trouble. And throw on top of all of that, that we live in a postmodern society where any sort of traditional wisdom or orthodoxy is default called into question and deconstructed, where the truth is relative. And everyone is told to discover and define truth for yourself. It's not uncommon to hear phrases like, well, you have your truth and I have mine. 
or speak your truth. I thought truth was just the truth. Is that just me? And I don't say all of this to scare you or alarm you, but to point out a treacherous treacherous reality of our age. However, this is not a new phenomenon. Paul faced similar issues in his day and in his ministry. They just weren't through the medium of technology. Paul was a church planter in the first century. He would go from city to city, planting churches, preaching the gospel, proclaiming the good news and making disciples. And he would plant a church in a city and move on. And oftentimes he would later receive word that another teacher had moved into one of these churches he had planted and began teaching contrary things to the gospel of Christ. They would begin adding to or taking away from the message that Paul had presented. And the church that Paul had planted, they were now confused and at a loss. They didn't know what was true or what was false and who to believe. In the first century, Christianity, or just the way of Jesus, was pretty new, especially to the pagan Gentiles who were just newly entering into the family of God. The New Testament was still being written, like in real time, it was still coming to life. Many of these Gentile converts, they didn't grow up going to synagogue and hearing the Old Testament scriptures. And this made these young churches particularly susceptible to someone coming in and adding to or taking away from the gospel message that had been preached through Paul. Paul addresses issues like this in a number of his letters. As I was studying, I was like, actually almost every letter, Paul has something to say in this vein. But it's the main concern of one of his letters to the church in Galatia. And he opens that letter like this. In Galatians chapter one, he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in in the grace of Christ. Now, Paul's not talking about himself. He's not saying, I'm astonished that you deserted me. No, he's talking about Jesus. He's saying, I am astonished that you have so quickly turned away from Jesus and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. There's only one gospel. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel in heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And then he basically just restates that again. Again, as we've said before, now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Misinformation and false teachers were a problem for Paul in the first century church. And it was not an issue that Paul took lightly. He said, hey, I just, just to clear the record, there is one Jesus and there is one gospel. And I don't want you, don't let anyone fool you by twisting or distorting that gospel, throwing you into confusion with some perverted version of what I presented you with. Paul and the other New Testament writers, they warn severely about this all through the New Testament. They warn against those who would twist the gospel and distort it for their own desires of the flesh and in doing so lead others astray. The Galatian church in particular that 
Paul was addressing here had been influenced by a group of Jews that were teaching to the church that they could only enter into the church through the rite of circumcision and becoming Jewish. They were teaching that circumcision and becoming Jewish was a prerequisite to following Jesus. And Paul, in, so let's go back to Philippians now. That was Galatians. Philippians, Paul's addressing a very similar issue here in our text in Philippians. In verse two, Paul says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Paul is specifically calling out a group of false teachers similar to the ones in Galatia. But here's the core issue. They were pushing an ideology onto the Philippian church that was a distortion of the gospel. Now, a quick look at each of these terms because if you're careful, not careful, it looks like Paul is just hurling insults at these false teachers. But that's not exactly what Paul is doing. Each of these descriptors that he gives are very pointed and specific in what he is communicating with them. First, he says, look out for the dogs. The term dogs was used by Jesus and other prophets in scripture to reference opponents of God's truth. So Paul was calling these uh, false teachers opponents of the truth of God. Dogs is also a term of contempt used by Jews towards Gentiles in the first century who were unclean according to the law. Dogs in the first century church, unlike here in where we live, are not household pets, um, but they were disease-ridden wild animals that you would never allow into your home. That's honestly still the case in a lot of the world today. I am reminded of some time that I've spent in Jamaica and not like Sandals Resort Jamaica where we're feeling hot, 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 but, <laughs> but in like real world Jamaica where dogs are wild animals just like running around eating trash. Taylor has a funny story talking with a friend in Jamaica about us having dogs in our homes in America and she's just like looking at Taylor like she is crazy for letting a dog into her house. So Paul here, he's hitting with this double entendre. He's saying, one, the Jewish elite that are pushing this view are opponents of the truth of God in that they are the truly unclean ones, not the Gentiles, because they look to the law and their flesh as what justifies them before God, not Christ. And Paul goes on and he says, look out for the evildoers, or more accurately, the laborers or workers of evil. Paul here is pointing out the evil nature of the efforts of these teachers and what they're doing by distorting the gospel and pushing this ideology. Paul is saying this twisting the gospel in any form or fashion is a truly evil act. It's not just bad, it's not just incorrect, it's not just bad theology, it is an act of evil. To take something holy and to warp and distort it for our own desires is evil. And third, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Pointing to the ritual of circumcision that this group was forcing upon the Gentile believers, Paul doesn't use the customary term for the ritual of circumcision, 
but he uses a term used for unlawful mutilation of the flesh, such as castration. It's this brilliant wordplay that Paul is doing where he calls that unlawful castration and contrasts that by using the proper term of the ritual of circumcision in reference to the church. Those who, quote, worship by the spirit of God and put no confidence in the flesh. So Paul was warning the church. He was saying, hey, be on your guard against those who would want to lead you astray from the gospel. He's saying, watch over your doctrine and do not fall prey to false teachers or a false gospel. So what was wrong with the doctrine that was being pushed upon the Philippian church? At its core, there was an infiltration of ideology in the teaching. People were twisting the gospel, adding requirements for salvation beyond Christ, and thereby diminishing the potency and power of the gospel. They were saying it's Jesus and circumcision, or it's Jesus and the law. Maybe you grew up and it was Jesus and works-based righteousness, For many today, it seems to be a number of things. Jesus and Buddha. Jesus and the new age. Or Jesus and the proper socio-political standing or ideology. In a teaching titled, A Community of Orthodoxy in a Culture of Ideological Idolatry, that's a mouthful, John Mark Comer said this about ideology. Bear with me. Ideology is when you take a good thing and you make it ultimate. You take something like equality or justice or freedom or politics or a nation state, all good things in my opinion, but when they become the ultimate thing, they become de facto gods that, put pe- that people put their faith in and give their allegiance to and that they need to be safe and happy and the result is always disaster because God is no longer in his rightful place as our ultimate. He continues on to say, the common denominator in ideologies is that they put humanity in its ways and its moral reasoning and its autonomy from God at the center rather than God and his ways and his judgments of good and evil and his authority. And we were made to live in orbit around God, not for anything to live in orbit around the self. One is the path to heaven, the other the path to destruction. In Paul's day, just as in today, there is this pull within us to superimpose human ideologies on top of the gospel. In Paul's day, it was ideologies of the Jewish elite. Today, it's a plethora of ideologies, whether it's ideologies of conservatism or nationalism or ideologies of progressivism and sexual liberation or any other number. But when we allow ideologies of any kind to infiltrate the church and our discipleship to Jesus, it is no longer Christ who we are looking to for our salvation and life 
because there is no such thing as a Jesus and something else gospel. When we accept a Jesus and something else gospel, we in truth reject Christ and look to our own flesh for our salvation. It's the fall of Genesis 3 all over again, and I'm not exaggerating or making that up. Paul says something very similar in 2 Corinthians. Writing to the church in Corinth, he says, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Now, don't misread Paul. He's not telling them to put up with it readily enough. He is getting onto them for putting up with it readily enough. He's calling out the Corinthian church and saying that, and getting onto them for putting up with people proclaiming a false gospel and a false Jesus in their church. Orthodoxy was of extremely high importance to Paul. And orthodoxy simply just means right doctrine or right belief, which for Paul was not about following the rules. It was about maintaining a pure and holy representation of the gospel before a pure and holy God. That's why in Philippians, Paul goes on to contrast these false teachers with the church saying, we are the true circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. We all have this tendency within us to put our confidence in, the, in our own flesh. And when Paul and the New Testament authors, when they speak of the flesh, they're often referring to our human nature apart from God. In this particular case, I think Paul is specifically speaking to what we tend to value and strive for by our human nature apart from God. Commenting on Paul's words in Philippians, one biblical scholar comments, the Philippians and Paul and all true believers belong to a different camp, that of the true circumcision. Paul was referring to the circumcision of the heart that happens when a person trusts in Jesus Christ. The alternative is trusting in self and in right keeping for salvation. So the underlying question here is where do you put your trust? Where do you put your confidence? What do you look to for salvation? Is it a social status? Is it morality, just simply being a good person? Is it in your intellect? Does it come from within you and your own capabilities or does it come from Christ in Christ alone? It's within our human nature to be the workers of our own salvation. It's the fundamental human failing to assume that we can work our way by merit or effort or by transcendence into the kingdom of God. And that's what Adam and Eve did when they took of the fruit. 
It's what these false teachers were doing by proclaiming a false gospel. And it's something that we see all too often as human ideology or confidence in the flesh creeps into the church and usurps the throne of our heart from Christ. From here, Paul goes on to give us his social resume. Every reason that he would have had to be counted as righteous based on what these teachers tell you you need to be righteous. He's like, hey, I myself have more reason than any of them or you to boast in the flesh. If anyone thinks they've got reason, I've got more. Circumcised on the eighth day, which is what they're wanting you to do. Of the chosen people of Israel, which you can't enter into. A Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee as to keeping the law, and under that law, blameless. No one is more righteous than me based on those metrics, Paul is saying. But he goes on after listing all that out and says, whatever gain I had, I count it all as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Paul's using not church language there. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. He's saying, whatever righteousness I supposedly have based on my works, based on my social status, based on what society tells me I am valuable because I count it all as trash compared to the righteousness that comes through Messiah Jesus. Which, funnily enough, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he tells his disciples and those listening, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Which, as we just read from Paul, he was at the top of the list. And Jesus was saying, unless your righteousness exceeds that, you can't enter into the kingdom of God, disqualifying everyone. He's saying there is nothing you can do based on your own righteousness to enter into the kingdom of God. I am the only way. Not a righteousness of our own, but that which comes through faith in Christ. That word faith can also be translated as faithfulness, trust, or belief. And it carries with it this implication of actions born out of that trust. So Paul, he wants to be found in Christ on the day of Christ, which comes through faithfulness to Jesus. Not only belief in who he was and what he did, but through being faithful to him in submission to his authority. We love the idea of Jesus being the way when we're helpless and down on the bottom but not so much when we're on top. And everything around us makes us think that we can have righteousness based on anything outside of Christ. We love being rescued and raised up, but we do not love having our strongholds torn down. But that's Paul's story 
a Pharisee of Pharisees, blameless under the law, who encountered the living Jesus and traded it all in because his righteousness couldn't come from Jesus and something else. Paul knew that there was only space for one savior, one king, and one authority. Family, we need to be wary of where our righteousness comes from, where we put our faith. In an age where humility is terribly out of fashion and self-righteousness is an epidemic run rampant, in a country where we are all so rich that we often mistake ourselves for God, or at the very least, we don't really know what it means to depend on God, in a generation that is very swift to exact justice by our own hands because we think we are the saving hope of humanity. In a culture where the idea of authority probably makes a few of you in the room uncomfortable, what is our faith in? True righteousness comes through faith in Christ. We all have faith in something, whether you believe in Jesus or not, whether you follow him or not, if you're visiting, welcome. So glad you're here. But underneath every false gospel, whatever we put our faith in is a distorted and wrong placement of that faith. For the group Paul is addressing, their faith was placed in their own righteousness based on a particular ideology and it is much still the same today. For this church, Ethos Hillsborough Village, our faith is in Christ and Christ alone. Not any other ideology or false gospel. We are not a political church. We do not align with the left or the right or any other man-made system of morality or thought. Our sole allegiance as a church is to Christ and Christ alone. We are a church submitted to the authority of Christ and therefore the authority of Scripture. We believe that Scripture is one of the primary ways that Christ mediates his authority and that it is the inspired word of God. And this is an idea that we actually get from Jesus himself Jesus had an extremely high view of Scripture. And if you pay attention, he definitely thought it was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And he called people to live in alignment with Scripture. And he called out people who distorted it for their own gain. I began this teaching by talking about fake news and misinformation and this underlying difficulty to discern what is true, both about the world around us and in regards to the gospel. But we have in Scripture, through the Holy Spirit, a true and trustworthy source. Yes, unfortunately, people twist and distort it. It's a problem that arises when there is no reverence for Scripture as holy, and it's then used as a tool for wickedness. 
But when scripture is revered as holy and as a source of divine authority, interpretation is then handled with the utmost care and it leads to life for those who humbly approach it. And it leads us closer to God. Jesus knew that the scriptures reveal the best way to live in alignment with God, that they are true and trustworthy, maybe the only, one of the only true and trustworthy sources we have. In the same teaching I referenced earlier, John Mark said, we don't trust Jesus because we trust the Bible. We trust the Bible because we trust Jesus. And sometimes it's confusing. Sometimes we simply don't like what it has to say and we have to wrestle with it. But at the end of the day, we trust the Bible because we trust Jesus. St. Augustine once said, if you believe what you like in the gospels and reject what you don't, it's not the gospel you believe, but yourself. We trust that what we find in the Bible leads to life and flourishing and ultimately Christ himself. Speaking to his disciples in John chapter eight, Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you truly are my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. The truth was a name that Jesus called himself. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So if we abide in Christ's word, we come to know Christ, the truth, under all reality. Did you notice what Paul in our text from today states as being of surpassing worth? Knowing Christ. That's what was worth trading it all in for. And knowing Christ personally is the single greatest treasure available to us in this life and the next. We'll talk more about that next week, but for now, two primary ways that we come to know Christ are through prayer and through scripture. In both, we open our soul to the authority of Christ as king over our life, setting aside any confidence in the flesh or any, in the ideologies of the world, and we receive Christ, our Lord, who is the embodiment of truth and love. So as we move to communion, um, I'm gonna invite you guys, you can circle up in groups of three to five to discuss and reflect together or feel free to reflect on your own. But I've got three questions for us this morning. One, if you're honest, do you believe in a Christ and something else gospel? Two, what ideologies, if any, threaten to become the ultimate thing in your life over Jesus? And three, do you tend to have more confidence in your flesh than in Christ? Uh, grab the communion. I'll come back up and lead us through communion, but go ahead and circle up in groups of three to five if you'd like and discuss, reflect, and we'll do communion in five to seven minutes.